Hello and welcome to Music and Casts, a podcast series discussing topics in and around the field of music education. Today I have with me composer and theorist Dr. Wes Flynn. Wes has his undergraduate degree in music theory and composition from Moorhead State University in Moorhead, Kentucky, and his master's in composition and PhD in music theory from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. He has held teaching positions in Kentucky, Ohio, Massachusetts, and Georgia, and is currently Associate Professor of Music and Assistant Chair of the Division of the Humanities at the University of Minnesota Morris. In this episode, Wes and I will be discussing the world of music theory and why it's important to students of music at all levels. Wes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so today we're just discussing some things about music theory, which obviously you have a lot of background in, uh, both as a student um, and as an educator. And so I think a lot of people overlook music theory, um, even though really it's kind of like the the backbone of music itself. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us in your words, how you be, what is music theory? Well, I've always described music theory as the, the how and why of music, coupled with musicology usually, just to get a sense of, you know, how is a piece of music put together? And why is that important? Why does it matter how it is put together? So as a theorist, I do a lot of analysis. But I also try to understand the music in a cultural context. And, you know, one of the we had a little thought exercise in uh, my analysis of pop music class yesterday because we were talking about different types of approaches to analyzing pop music. And I said, what if there was a universe where the standard overtone series didn't exist? How would our definition of consonants and dissonance differ? And we kind of came to the conclusion that it wouldn't differ too much. Uh, because a lot of that has to do with not just mathematical and physical relationships, but cultural expectations as well. So for me, music theory is just how is a piece of music put together and why does that matter? Good, good. So a lot of people view music theory as sort of that stuffy, boring subject in music. Um, And they're not necessarily wrong. (laughs) True, right? But... uh... You know that it's only reserved for those either studying music or those that are in the, the music academia world. Um, and what are your thoughts on this? Like, I mean, is it that stuffy, boring subject, or is it something that can be interesting and, and needs to be talked about more? Well, apart from the little joke there, I actually believe it's a a, a vibrant and exciting field uh, because it's so great to know how a piece works. And, and to be able to think about the piece, you know, why, why does, I, I always go back to this quote from the trombonist J.J. Johnson. Uh, he played in Benny Carter's band when he was in Indianapolis in the 1940s and uh, played third trombone in, in Benny's band. And, you know, everyone in that band was, was monstrously good, but he was not only studying the arrangements, he was also listening to pieces by Prokofiev and Stravinsky and Bartok. He said, I wanted to know what made them tick. I wanted to know why it felt so good to play the third trombone part in Benny's band. And theory is a path to that. Uh, If you enjoy music, if you enjoy listening to music, if you enjoy making music, uh, it adds so much. It's not necessary for further enjoyment, certainly, and I would never claim that, that level of authority. But having a sense of how something is put together 
uh, really, I think, adds to the enjoyment of the process. And, and I fought it when I was starting out as a composer uh, more years ago than I care to admit. Uh, one of the things that I, I kind of thought was that, you know, if I learn too much theory, it's, it's going to make me overthink how I compose. And I have found that the opposite is the case. Having that theory knowledge, having that understanding of construction of, of both what we call common practice music, the Western tonal music from about uh, 1720 to 1850 or so, has, in addition to other uh, theory trends like dodecaphonic music and, and things like that, has has allowed me to be a better composer because it, I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. I don't have to figure out a way to convey something. When people have been doing it this way for a while, I can just say, this is what I'm trying to say. Here's a model. I can use that as a springboard. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's been wonderful. Yeah, see, that's kind of how I view a lot of it. Um, it just, I think it makes music more interesting when you, when you can understand where the, the composer or artist is coming from. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I see what he did there. And it sort of gives you this deeper appreciation for the piece. Um, and, and certainly... You know, I think a lot of it is the fact that, and we'll be getting into this later, I'm sure, uh, the way theory has been taught in the past, it's been, we refer to it as music theory, implying it that it is some sort of universal idea, when in reality it's, hey, here's how certain bits of music from a certain time period in a certain geographical area functioned. Right. And fortunately, the discipline has begun the process, and it will be a long and ongoing process of moving away from that. And I think that helps because, you know, the way it's written, the way it has been taught in the past is basically, are you a pianist who goes to Juilliard? Then this will help you. Right. And most of us do not have that. Most of us do not come in as Juilliard trained pianists. I mean, I'm, I'm a euphonium and trombone player who went to Moorhead State in Kentucky. But the nice thing about theory is also it can be a great equalizer in that way. I always say that there's, you know, augmented six chords are the same whether you went to Eastman or Moorhead State. And right. that's something that I think can make a difference. Yeah, I was just recently talking about that with uh, my advisor in my master's program, where they were talking about their rethinking their uh, their view of music theory and, and how in depth, you know, for for their uh, practices of educating people that are out there in the in the public. I'm I'm here in Ohio. Uh, you know, the out in the public schools, like if you're going to be the junior high or elementary or even high school music educator, how much in-depth theory do you need? Like, do you need to be doing these huge analyzations of you know, Beethoven and Bach? And, uh, you know, I think they're kind of rethinking it to make it more practical for what they're doing. Uh, not that you shouldn't have an understanding of, you know, the background of where we come from, but, um, you know, ways to make it more practical to the to the job you're actually going to be doing. I want my students, when they go out and they're performers, they're educators, or even just informed musical citizens, I want them to be able to hear any piece of music. And if they can't analyze it immediately, they can say, but I know where to go to find what I need to analyze this. Right. And I, I think that is one of the better things we can do as theorists is give people a wider variety of tools for their toolkit. Right. And especially in the world of music where, I mean, the limits are almost endless for what direction you can go with it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of, uh, varying levels of students. Uh, cause obviously sort of, like I mentioned, depending on what your student is doing or, or where they are in their musical background, uh, you know, the, the level that they're going to be aware of theory or 
or should know about theory is going to vary a little bit. Um, so obviously as a beginning student, you know, whether they're that fifth grade band student or third grade choir student, um, it's going to vary by age and instrument, right? As far as what oh, expectation they should have. I think part of it is we also need to do a better job of incorporating theory into general music. for, And that will take some of the pressure off the instrumental and vocal teachers once they get into an ensemble. You know, I, I, we, we look at uh, a lot of the general music classes as basically various riffs on music appreciation. And if you're feeling really edgy, you get the recorders out. Okay. Um, so, so one of the thing, and, and somewhere in this office, I do have a recorder from the year I taught elementary general music. Uh, you may remember that year was the longest year on record, but um, the, it, it, I, for the beginning student scales and chords are absolutely part of that language. And, and certainly I, I think we've come to that general acceptance uh, as you move up the ranks into say high school, junior high and high school, um, being able to think formally. I, I don't think we spend enough time on form because we, we have this idea that form is something reserved for college, but form is, you know, for my money, one of the foundation, it's, it's one of the main elements of music, you know, melody, Definitely. harmony, rhythm, timbre, texture, form. And, and to be able to think about, how this works. Why, why should it matter when this theme comes back at the end that it's in the parallel major or it's in the relative major and how does that affect how you perform it? Uh, and, and, you know, we can talk about those things without going too far down the road of technical terms. Right. But I think by high school, you should be thinking in terms of form and cadences and phrases and things like that. I think that will do you more good for direction than learning yet another scale. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's skills something are at, that, you can build on that. Yeah. And that's something. So I'm, I come from the band world, uh, you know, taught uh, band at the levels from, you know, beginning band through, you know, seniors in high school. And I've always thought that that, that concept, you know, even talking about form is something that you can keep up with along the way, you know, when they, even in your beginning band books, like standards of excellence or whichever ones, you know, you might be using, you know, they talk about basic form in there. And I, and I feel like, you know, you show them the introduction of that. And then a lot of us sort of forget that along the way as we progress into, you know, sheet views and getting out of the method books. Um, but f obviously form is always there uh, in all the pieces. And I think part of that, because theory is driven mostly by colleges, the theory curriculum, and we'll talk about as, as it relates to like high school AP and things like that. It's still driven primarily by institutions of higher education, like where I'm at. Right. And Institutions, here's a dirty little secret. Uh, institutions of higher ed can move very slowly most of the time. So, uh, you know, says the guy who took 12 years to finish his doctorate. Uh, this, this idea that, uh, you know, I can come up with a new idea and have it disseminated into the general uh, theory curriculum in a matter of months or a year or two. Oh, boy, that's, uh, that is a pretty uh, wide misreading of the, of the issue. Uh, and I've done actually done a little bit of research into how topics get into music theory. And I will say that the rate of expansion and evolution in college level music theory, which will then affect things like AP music theory and, and what's taught in high schools and what high, more importantly, what high school ensemble directors and music educators learn and what then they then take back to their students, that rate is increasing. It's not nearly as quick as a lot of us would like, but it is getting there. 
Definitely. And I think uh, technology helps with that a little bit too. Um, yeah, I know one of the things I was looking at, I, I was fortunate enough to teach in a school where the whole complex was K through 12. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to implement it before I left. But I wanted to talk to my colleagues at the different levels. Like, like you mentioned, hey, we're doing general music in the elementary school. You know, I'm, I'm working with my like five colleagues that hey, we see these students, you know, pre-K through 12, let's develop a program for everybody. Like even in the general music classes, learn those basics so that if they do want to branch out into things like choir or band at the fifth, sixth grade level, whenever that might happen, that they've already got a solid background. And even if they don't progress into a performing ensemble, they've got some knowledge and a better appreciation of music. Um and I felt like that was something that, you know, especially in a smaller district like that, we had the power to to create this streamlined curriculum uh, where everybody would be on the same page. Uh, whether you're... Music literacy is literacy, first of all. Correct. I really believe that. And, and secondly, I really think that every public parochial elementary, primary, secondary school should center the general music program in the curriculum. And band and choir and orchestra, those are elaborations of that. Now, I know that there are trophy cases that would argue with that. Right. And, and, and I know that there are fundamental reasons why the performing ensembles are, are centered in, in these situations. But we do a very good job at a lot of institutions of educating people who know they want to be band directors or choir directors or orchestra directors. And in the high school, at the, when they know in high school that that's what they want to do, a lot of our music programs do a very good job of that, and a not so great job of other people. And you know, I, I'm reminded of a quote that was going around Twitter a while back: uh, the 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 space between in band in high school and in a band in high school is a cavernous gulf. Yeah, right. And, and I, I think that what we need to do is we need to be reaching out to those people who are not just in band, but in a band. And, you know, the way to do that is not to say, but you can only consider yourself a student of music theory if you spend all this time with the well-tempered clavier and Beethoven Opus 13. Right. That reminds me, too, that was one of my favorite aspects. I had the great pleasure of being able to teach a rock music studies class. Oh, that's and fantastic. And because of our setup, it had a performance element to it. Like, you know, we had the drum set there. Kids could bring their guitars in and, you know, we'd hook up the mics. And I reached a lot of students that didn't go through the band program, you know, or the choir mm-hmm. program. These were guys that they played in their garage band with their friends. Um, and it was great be- because of their love for that class. Then some of them would later take my music history or my music theory class that I taught and so you, they would come with a good knowledge. Like the one guitar player, he had a better scalier knowledge than any of my students. He'd walk up to a xylophone and he would just whip out his C-sharp chromatic scale or his C-sharp major scale. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, none of my other students could do it that quick. Uh, but he I had that knowledge. I probably couldn't do it from, that quick but, at this point. Right. But as a guitar player, he knew his scales up and, up and down. And uh, it gave these kids that were not part of the you know, standard sort of institutionalized music department, 
um, a chance to come in and, you know, learn more about music theory and music in general. We would do the blues form and they'd have to uh, write a blues, even just in its basic format. I didn't expect a lot of those kids to be performers, but those that were, it allowed them to showcase what they were doing. And other people, we would just do basic, here's the 12 bar blues form and let's pluck something out. Um, mm-hmm. But that was a great but opportunity being, to reach other students. Just being able to think in those terms, just being able to look at a 12 bar blues and understand it, not just on sort of a, yeah, I've heard a lot of blues level, but think about, okay, why does this chord progression work this way? Why is it important to have the turnaround at the end? What, what are the things that make this work? Why, why the blue notes? Why do we have the flat three, the sharp four and the flat seven? What does that have to do with things? And I'm teaching a, an analysis of pop music at the, at the uh, college level right now. And we've been looking at things like Walt Everett's uh, taxonomy of, rock harmony styles and Nicole Monte's uh, work in, uh, you know, modal and triadic harmony and, and, and rock music. And, and that's been utter fla- utterly fascinating to me as a theorist myself, because, you know, I, I, I admit to being a bit of a weird child when I was younger and didn't <laughs> listen to the time. I know for those who know me, that's gotta be a surprise, but, um, I, and to, to be able to listen to these repertoires, with the kind of ears because the traditional theory curriculum doesn't always train you to listen to those repertoires uh, with the same ears. And, and, you know, Roman numerals are great as an analytical tool, but in certain repertoires, they don't tell you much. I I always compare it to using set theory to analyze Haydn. You know, I I can use the techniques of set theory and look at a Haydn piano sonata, and it's going to tell me that I've got a lot of 311037 in there. And that's great. That's wonderful that I have that knowledge, but it doesn't tell me much about the music itself. Right. So let's talk about, um, so obviously there's a lot of general ways that um, directors of ensembles can be utilizing music theory. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, that educator that has the opportunity to start a music theory class at the high school level. Where should the focus be? I guess it. That answer is going to be contingent upon what your goal of the project is. And and that's not a satisfying answer. And I recognize that that is not a satisfying answer, but it is, you know, on a practical level, I'm thinking just general continuity, practical level. uh, It's very easy to default to the position of, I can teach my kids enough that they can test out of a semester or a year of college music theory that might expedite their uh, ability to get through college. And certainly that's a, a noble and, and important thing to do, especially as college has gotten a lot more expensive over the years. If you can come out of there a little more quickly, perhaps, I understand the impetus to do that. I have a fundamental disagreement with that, but that has nothing to do with this particular topic. Um, the goal of any program in music theory should be, you know, going back to what I said to just having a better understanding of how the music is constructed, the materials and structure of music. The theory book I used in college three decades ago was entitled Materials and Structure of Music. And that has kind of sat with me uh, all these years because I didn't have theory in high school. Um, The fact that you could, there was a music theory class, uh, but I'm told that my high school band director who didn't teach it, a different educator taught it, said that it would not prepare me for college level. So you do need to take into account, and I wasn't going to be a theorist at the time. I was going to be a high school band director, you know, 
life has a way of uh, throwing you curveballs. But I, I think, you know, keeping in mind what is expected at the college level, certainly make that a part of it. But I wouldn't necessarily center that in a high school curriculum. I would start with the kids where they are. So I, I would be thinking a lot more in terms of uh, pop harmony and organization. So I would go in first with something like the blues scale. I would go in first with uh, chords and commercial chord symbols. I, I think it would be incredibly important at that level to develop fluency and facility in commercial chord symbols. Yeah, your, your bass player, your, your guitarist, your pianist in your jazz program is probably going to be able to develop that pretty quickly. But you know, beyond just for soloing purposes, being able to read a lead sheet uh, because even if you think, well, I'm going to be a high school choir director, why do I need to know, you know all these things? Well, you, know, you might find yourself in a situation where you have to accompany your high school choir. And being able to look at the chord symbols makes it a lot easier to come up with something uh, when you're accompanying them rather than trying to read into it. Because this, this is how I read chord symbols. And I know people can't see this because it's just audio. But I read chord symbols like C, boom, D minor over C, boom. Uh, you know, E flat seven, flat five, you know, sharp nine, boom, got it. I see notes and I, and even after doing this for several years, I still have to like, all right, every good morning. I have to stop and think a second, you know, how to make my fingers work. Cause I'm not a pianist. I'm a little brass player, but if I see chord symbols, I know I can do that. So right. I, I would, I would think in terms of a facility of chord symbols. And then from there, once they can read chord symbols and have a sense of s some scales and, and structures like that, then you start connecting that to uh, the larger uh, ideas of both analysis. Now, see how we're in the key of E flat here, and at some point we've moved into B flat, and you're not even talking Roman numerals at this point. You're just saying you can see how these things happen, how this chord is often preceded by this kind of chord, or you know, if these are your options here. And just think in terms of, you know, don't even bring Roman numerals into it until they have a good sense of how harmonic progression especially in Western tonal harmony, which, you know, for all we talk about how, you know, Western music is the, the center of the curriculum, a lot of kids, a lot of high school students, their experiences with, you know, the music of Eric Whitaker, the music of John Mackey, uh, great composers, love them to death, uh, but they're not necessarily writing within the same Western tonal idiom as Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. And so when you say, well, this chord always goes to this chord, and yet they can point to 37 other pieces where that does not happen, there's a, a bit of a cognitive dissonance. And I think that's where people start thinking, well, theory is outdated, and, and theory is old-fashioned, and it gets in the way. And that, that's why I would center a high school curriculum by starting with the literature they know, whether it's popular music, whether it's stuff from the band, choir, or orchestra, uh, but, but be thinking in those terms. And that that's how I if, – if I – woke up tomorrow morning and I was starting a high school level music theory course from scratch. That is how I do it. Now, and then at some point you start talking Roman numerals because that is the, the lingua franca of the industry. You start talking about the different cadence types and, and, and why that matters and why, and you start talking about why the terminology matters in this context. But I think a lot of us think that we have to start jump right in with Roman numerals and uh, the prohibition on parallel fifths and octaves. When in reality, that's so much of the music of today is, is functioning with, with a lot of parallelisms. And, you know, because we, yes, I still take off for parallel fifths, fifths and octaves when I'm grading voice leading, 
but I don't center it in the curriculum like I used to because right. it even Bach, you know, has the occasional parallel fit. Yeah, I remember my uh, my high school teacher telling me when I was gonna you know, going into music because we didn't have a theory background. Any theory I learned, I hate to admit it, but when I got to my undergraduate, I couldn't even tell you how to write up a major triad, um, and I thought that was a huge disappointment looking back on it. But uh, but I do remember my teacher telling me that like, oh yeah, music theory, you're gonna take two years of it. The first year they're gonna teach you all the rules, and the second year they're gonna teach you how to break them all. <laughs> Um, there's a lot just, of truth to that. Yeah. Um, so, so once you kind of have that foundation set, you know, you, you got this class set up, you're, you're going through some of those elements you talked about. How do you make it fun for your students? How do you, especially at the high school level, try to you know keep it from being that stuffy, boring subject? Well, you yourself need to, first of all, feel comfortable with it because students can sense when, uh, they can sense fear for lack of a better term. And ha having taught, elementary school and then i was an assistant marching band director for a year uh for a, you know, a few months after that it was never a primary gig or anything but uh, they can sense fear so you you first of all you need to feel completely comfortable with it and the nice thing is at that level i think anyone with any training at all music theory can be right. if their college has done if their their own training has done the work and then just making say, sure you stay a chapter ahead. I, I think, you know, it, it's an easy answer to say, well, use examples that the kids know. And I encourage that. I don't think that alone is enough. And, right. you know, at the college level, you have opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily have, say, teaching at a public high school. If I want to use Megan the Stallion as an example <laughs> in my pop analysis class, I absolutely can. Uh, good luck to you if you're in a public high school and you try that. Right, um, right. Not, and, not and you know, we can, and and you know, the that that is a different topic for a different time, certainly. But uh, I, I even made a joke in my choral arranging classes. That I I don't know about you, but I am dying to hear the kids' Bob version of WAP. Um, <laughs> oh but, man! Uh, but you know, basically, I, I think it comes down to not only do you have to know the stuff, you have to believe in it. Right. And I think for a lot of lot of educators, and you know, as a music theory teacher, I will take some guilt for this. I will assume some of the the guilt for this because for a long time I was very much a traditional music theory professor, and it was a point of pride that for me that I was a traditional music theory professor. And then about eight ten years ago, I realized, and what has it gotten me? Because every year students come in without more and more students come in without that Juilliard piano major uh, preparation that the curriculum for which the curriculum is designed. What can I do? Because these students are going to get through this process one way or the other, or worse yet, they're not going to get through the process and we're going to lose them. And not only are we going to lose them as music majors, which of course every institution is worried about their numbers, we're going to lose them about pe as people who can think critically about music. And that's when the enterprise starts to collapse in on itself. Right. So definitely. you have to believe in what you're doing and bring that energy into the mix. And you have to, you know, talk about why you yourself uh, love this stuff. And if you don't love it, if you don't love talking about how music is put together, then for the love of all that is holy, 
do not be the person who starts the music theory class just because you feel that you should have one. Find one of your colleagues who enjoys the stuff and say, hey, can you do this because I don't feel it. Uh, there's a, a Stravinsky quote, a, a str quote for Igor Stravinsky. Says, we are taught to appreciate music. We should instead be taught to love it. And and I think that's very true of the field of music theory. I crack on it, but I love it. I love learning things. And if you can take that love and you can show it in there. And yeah, definitely don't come in the first day with, you know, Tristan and Zisolda. Uh, that, that would be a bit much. But be willing to approach them on their terms, but also be willing to challenge them and say, hey, I'm willing to meet you here. Are you willing to come with me here? And and having that kind of energy, that kind of mindset, I think that does more good than, you know, if I were to suggest a list of topics or musical examples, you can find those online. There Definitely. are tons Definitely. of websites that have like, all right, if you're talking about this concept, here's a list of classical pieces. Here's a list of jazz pieces. Here's a list of rock pieces, pop pieces, et cetera, that can bring, those are findable and, and, you know, ask a music theorist, they'll help you find them. But what you really need to build a curriculum like that, to, to build a music theory program is a genuine love for learning about this sort of thing. That and will I do think, more than anything else. Yeah. And I definitely think that's true for any topic. Uh, you did a great segue there as far as things being available for educators when they want to, um, learn more about a topic or give further study for a topic. So let's mention a little bit about what, what technology is out there for those studying music theory, whether it's for the educator or whether it's for students who are, you know, doing some further learning, wanting to learn about it. What, what kind of technology is out there? Obviously we're living in a world where everything's out there. Um, do you have some good resources that you would point people in for music theory based technology? Well, Matt Gamut was always a good ear training resource and that's been around for a while, but they're still doing it. Uh, and there are various other programs um, that do it. Uh, I think it was the University of Puget Sound, I want to say, has some good open theory materials. The nice thing is with the open material, open textbook, open educational resource uh, revolution that's going on, there are a lot of good free, and that, that's important in this day and age because things are more expensive than ever, uh, free materials that are well put together. And, and they have... Uh, I, for example, I use uh, Ben Geyer's Music in Mind and Culture uh, book and workbook. It's not the only thing I use, but I, I pull a lot of material from there because it is open source and, and uh, open educational resource. It, it's free for the students, but it's also well done. And it also has the advantage of thinking beyond just uh, you know, Roman numerals, cadences, uh, set and shanker approach to music theory. It's, it, it actually does draw from other traditions beyond the Western art music tradition. And, and that, that has become increasingly important to me as well. Um, Aurelia and Musician are, are good programs that are out there. Honestly, and this, this will sound weird, but if you know me at all, you'll, you'll understand this completely. One of the best resources I have discovered as a music theorist and as a music theory teacher is Twitter. Twitter. Okay. And, Twitter. And I say that because uh, I, my running joke is that I'm a far better theorist on Twitter than I am in real life. But in actuality, what it has done has it has put me in communication with a lot of people who are doing wonderful and interesting things and people who dig what I'm doing. And we have this wonderful back and forth about, you know, how would you do this particular concept or 
what do you think about including this in the curriculum? What needs to be removed in order to make room for it? And because people are, are able to engage on a level that they would have to normally wait for conferences or emails to deal with. And here it's it's real time is as it happens. And and the most important aspect is you can have that back and forth. And I think it's that's not perfect. The, right. But it is something. I think that's one of those things like we were talking about earlier, where um, I think it's those discussions, those real time discussions. You mentioned not having to wait for a conference that, you know, social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, all these different things. Um, they give us the ability to have those real time conversations. I mean, even things like Zoom, I mean, or, you know, this podcast, you know, we're sitting here, I'm looking at you face to face and we're talking in real time. You know, you can have these discussions. And I think that's probably part of what's helping speed up that, uh, you know, transition you were mentioning early on in the episode about, you know, disseminating that stuff from academia into the the rest of the, you know, uh, educational world. Um, I definitely think that that type of stuff helps speed up that process. There's a concept from political science called the Overton window, and this is one of my current areas of research. So I'm going to put on my theorist hat and talk about it for half a second, if you don't mind, because okay. I think it is kind of relevant here. Uh, the, the idea of the Overton window, it's a political science uh, concept that says within this framework, this is what is acceptable in American political discourse at any given point. And what political parties, interest groups, lobbyists, etc. try to do is move the window so their pet idea is acceptable discourse and opposition to their pet idea is not acceptable discourse. Uh, I've adapted that for music theory uh, and, and not so much about what is acceptable and unacceptable, but or is what is centered in the curriculum. And what I found out is that in, in music theory pedagogy especially, we're very good at expanding the window, but not really moving it. Once something gets into the curriculum, it's almost impossible to dislodge it. And in many ways, that's good because it gives you a historical narrative in a sense. But at the same time, like at the standard undergraduate music theory curriculum, we have four semesters and we're already relegating the analytical tools for most of the music that students coming in will know to the last eight weeks of 32, right? 64. Right. So one half of one semester for all the stuff that you actually know and love and three and a half semesters for stuff that may or may not have a ton of relevance for you. Right. And, and so one of the things I'm grappling with is, all right, what are we going to do here? At my institution, we, we completely redid the curriculum a couple of years back, and I'm proud of this. And it actually led to an improvement in retention as well, which, you know, for the numbers count, number crunchers out there, that's, that's a good and happy thing. But one of the things I did is I tried to make it more modular, and I tried to decenter the Western canon, you know, because a pitch is a pitch, whether you call it B or T or whatever solfege syllable or note name that you use for it. Uh, if you look at, say, South Asian classical music and music from the Indian subcontinent, uh, they're using pretty much the same pitch collection we are. They just have different names for it. So why can't we mention that? Why can't we talk about those things? You know, I've got my first year students. Uh, we're reading Walt Everett right now. Uh, just we're talking about it. I've not had them read the, the, the actual article or anything, but we've talked about Walt Everett's Six Rocks six rock tonal organizational systems um you know as as freshmen as first year students that's that's cool and, and what it does is also i think it, it it empowers the students 
to think outside of what they've been told music theory is. Right. And anytime you can empower students to engage a little more with the curriculum, with the issues. Um, and if that means that we only spend five weeks on parallel fifths instead of seven, then so be it. <laughs> right. You know, I'll, I'll make that work. I'm happy to make that work. And eventually they're going to realize that, yeah, you can actually write a parallel fifth in this context. You know, it, it gives us the time to contextualize things. So that you don't come out of here that a lot of people come out of their only thing they remember from theory class is no parallel fifths. And, and, and that's not a true reflection of the discipline. So I, I think it, a lot of it goes back to the idea of just thinking in terms of what are the actual concepts we need people to learn and how can we center those? And then how diverse repertoires can we bring in to reinforce those? You do those things, I think you'll see a wonderful shift in how students respond to music theory. All right. Well, as we're wrapping things up here, you, you sort of just now touched on my the last thing I wanted to ask about. Do you see the state of music theory changing, both in what music is being created and how society or academia views it? And I think you, you sort of did a good job of just answering that. Um, I really hope so. And, and again, I say that as someone who thrived in the traditional system, even though I didn't have the, the Juilliard piano background. I, I I took the music theory. Once I decided this is what I wanted, I mean, I wanted to be a composer and the undergraduate degree was theory and composition. So, all right. And that's usually how we think of theory as, as a, an ancillary to composition. And it is very much that too. But, you know, so I ended up doing a lot of theory stuff. And then as a composer, uh, you, it's rare to get college gigs teaching just composition. So I needed to have enough of an understanding of music theory to do that. But I, I did very well in the traditional system, and I, and I still love it. But it will not survive the next 50 years if it doesn't show relevance, if it doesn't show a willingness to adapt to changing situations, and if it doesn't really plug into what we're looking for as music, what music educators need, uh, what general music educators especially need. Uh, so, yeah, it's changing. And and we haven't even talked about you know what Phil Ewell's uh, work on music theories, white racial frame, and things like that. Um, you know we're really invest. The discipline of music theory is these days really investigating how we got here. And I'm grateful to see that people are willing to ask those questions now, uh, because we 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 wanted to wave some of those things away because well the, we we're we're scientists. Music Wissenschaft, you know, we, we go back to this, this Austro-German idea of we are objective observers. And the fact is, we're not objective observers. I would hope that everyone in music theory is incredibly subjective about it because that means they're emotionally invested in it. And it's not just a gig. This is far too important to be just a gig. So yeah, be subjective. It's okay. But just be upfront that you're being subjective and, and don't, because when, when you're not upfront about that, it's very easy to mask subjectivity by claiming historical lineage for objectivity. And, and I think we're really starting to realize that that way forward has failed us in the past and we need a different approach. So I'm grateful to see these changes happening and I'm very excited about where it's taking, even if it means things I love aren't part of the curriculum anymore. That's fine. They're still going to be there. My childhood has not changed. My college experience has not changed because we spend less time on parallel fifths now. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. 
Wes, thank you for joining me today. And uh, appreciate Total pleasure you. on my part. Had a great time. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of Music and Casts. We look forward to you joining us again in future episodes as we explore topics relevant to the field of music education. 